My name is Elliot Everett. I'm one of the assistant pastors here. And I also want to wish you a happy new year. Um, not much of a resolutions guy myself, uh, mainly because I always fail, probably. Um, but there's something about the new year, um, you know, especially when we've all shared in the year that we've had. Hope springs eternal. Um, and, and that's a beautiful thing in a lot of ways. And along those lines, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles, uh, or you can look along on the worship guide, to the end of Paul's letter to the Philippians. As hope springs eternal for us in a new year, and we wonder what kind of year will it be? Uh, will it be different? Will it get better? I think that's most of our, most of our questions. Paul has something to say as he rounds out this letter, a letter commonly referred to as his epistle of joy, uh, because he, in some sense he is always returning to this theme of joy or rejoicing or living in light of the joy that we have that's found in the gospel. And one of the things about this joy that he makes evident, uh, no matter what subject he turns to in this letter, is one thing he seems to be driving home is that there really is a joy to be found in the gospel, to be had by the Christian, in the Christian life, that is real, that is concrete, that is tangible, that cannot be affected, it cannot be changed by circumstances or feelings. And so it's no wonder, in my mind at least, that at the, as he closes out this letter, that he turns uh, to the subject of contentment. And so with that in mind, let's read here Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is God's word for us this morning. So Paul speaks here to a contentment that he's found, that the joy that he has in the gospel in Christ has also led him to a contentment, again, that surpasses any circumstance or feeling. So I want to consider three things about contentment with you this morning. The first thing is that contentment is elusive. We're always chasing after it, it seems. Second thing would be that Contentment is counterintuitive. It, it doesn't necessarily come the way we would expect it. And then finally, we'll see how Paul points us to the fact that contentment really is ours. So the first thing here is contentment is elusive. I grew up watching um, the Charlie and the, Charlie and the original Charlie and the Chocolate Factory movie, the one with uh, Gene Wilder, I believe was his name. Um, and my favorite scene... One of my favorite scenes is, has to do with Veruca Salt in the, the book and the movies. She is the poster child of what discontentment leads to, uh, and it's not a pretty picture. If you remember in her, 
her song in the movie, she says, I want the world, I want the whole world, I want to lock it all up in my pocket, it's my bar of chocolate, give it to me now. She sings that before being found out to be a bad egg and flying down the chute. The author of Ecclesiastes, he, he posed a question along these lines when he asked, what is there in the world to gain for all of your toil? What, it's a provocative question. What is there in the world that you could gain for all of your toil? I think Jesus, in a sense, takes that question and, and turns it even more when he said, when he asked, what would you gain if you had the whole world? forfeited your soul you know as the prior months have shown us life in general shows us that it, it seems at times if not at all times that the whole world everything around us seems to be colluding to stir up discontent to tell us that we need better that we need more and it's never enough I, mean, that's, I think it's one of the keys to advertising. You deserve and you need this. And, here, and we're just on this endless cycle, this endless hamster wheel of wanting more and striving after more and thinking we don't have enough. The historian and Frenchman Alexis de Tocqueville, when he toured America in the 1830s, one of the things that he noted uh, was this. 1830s, long time ago. A strange melancholy haunts the inhabitants in the midst of abundance. A strange melancholy haunts the inhabitants in the midst of abundance. And he was not setting out to write a spiritual uh, work when he said this, but he goes on to say that the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. Something that was obvious to him as he toured America and, lived, and watched how Americans lived. A strange melancholy. I think it's a, the perfect way uh, to put it. it. It's an interesting way to put it. It's that feeling that lingers. It always lingers that there's got to be more. No matter what is had or felt or experienced, there's this strange feeling that constantly follows after us that there's got to be more. There's got to be more behind it and more behind that and more behind that. And that more is even never enough. So it's to me, it's no wonder that so many have latched on to Philippians 4.13, a very popular verse, in ways that I think misses the context. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Well, what is Paul actually getting in that? I, I think in one sense, we've all breathed the air of a culture that is constantly telling us that if you believe in yourself, if you set your goals right, if you work hard at it, hard enough you can be or you can get to where you want to be in college ministry I, I used to say this as I travel around to churches it's like it's one thing to say that but it's another thing to actually look at the crushing burden that that is to live life in that way because if you fail or if you come up short that way of living says you're nothing but a failure but this weird thing about our hearts is that we really do like the idea that we can do anything or be anything. We like chasing after it, even though we know how elusive it is. That it's, no matter how close we may seem to get, it never is fully within our grasp. And so we're drawn to verses like Philippians 4.13... 
Because in a, in a sense, it sounds like all our striving is kind of, it gives all our striving a God-blessed uh, kind of twist. You can do, we read it, in a sense, you can do anything you want through him who strengthens you. But that's not what Paul said. What did Paul actually say? Well, he says things like, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. I've learned the secret, and this is fascinating to me, I've learned the secret of, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now, I think half of that equation makes sense to us. I have learned the secret, but the first thing he says, I've learned the secret of facing plenty. I've learned the secret of having more than what I need. And it goes along just the same as learning how to live when I have less than what I need. I wonder if you've ever stopped to think, to give an honest assessment about how you walk through periods in your life of abundance, of success. I wonder if you've ever stopped to reflect, like, where is my heart and mind in those, in those times uh, of abundance in life? I think we read throughout the Bible, we see case studies over and over in the Bible, and I think we can see it in our own lives, that usually it's in times of abundance, it's usually in times of having more than we need, that it can be the easiest to rely on ourselves and rely on ourselves alone, to look to our own abilities and our own resources. It's also the easiest time to put our hopes in comfort or pleasure. But ironically, it seems, you look in the Bible, you see, see it happen with people in the Bible, we see it happen in our own lives, Ironically, it seems that times of abundance can also be some of the easiest times to fall into discontent. To come to the point that that is the moment that I really need to ramp it up now. And I think it's because contentment is elusive. It is never fully within our grasp, it seems. At least the ways that we've been going about it. All our striving after contentment in our own way what we're constantly saying to ourselves is that what it, what culture and everything that we put around us is saying is that it's always going to require more of you no matter how close you get no matter how far you go more is always required there's always another step there's always a way to better yourself there's always someone who's better than you you have to keep going but the interesting thing here is that paul says true satisfaction True contentment actually has nothing to do with our circumstances. How could that be? I think he goes so far as to say not only can it have nothing to do with our circumstances, it cannot have anything to do with our circumstances because contentment in that way is elusive. Well, he keeps going. And the second thing he says here is that contentment is counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive. Arriving at a place of contentment actually comes in a way that you wouldn't expect. It comes in a way that you wouldn't think that's how it works. I wonder how you think, if you think to yourself in this new year, contentment is something you want to find. Contentment in your lot in life, your place in life, where, wherever you may be. How do you picture you being in a state of contentment? What do you picture, how would you describe a state of contentment? When I, when I thought about this, I, I think this is a common way of saying, I think most of us probably think of contentment as a state of seeing or believing that my needs are met and I don't need anything else. Everything else is just bonus, lanyap, as they say in Louisiana. It's just extra. 
that true satisfaction is, is this state of being able to stand alone, to stand apart, whatever my circumstances may be. Maybe being kind of an island unto myself in some sense. But again, that's not what Paul says. Paul doesn't say the secret is coming to a point where you don't need anything. What does he actually say? I, I suggest to you that what Paul says here in these verses, he's, he's saying that he needed something to be content. I need, he says, I need the strength of Jesus. I need him to strengthen me. I needed something that I didn't have and something I couldn't get myself. Now, think about this for a second. Paul is saying, I needed something I didn't have and could not get for myself. Does that not sound like the, the starting point of a textbook def definition of discontentment? Needing something I don't have, needing something I can't, and wanting something I can't get for myself. Well, listen to how Paul recounts his struggle with this in Romans chapter 7. This is what he said. Listen to this. He says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be the death of me. So trace this with me. Paul's saying, when I really examine the law, when I really try to take to heart the law and what it required of me, I thought I was doing fine. But when I got to the 10th commandment, don't covet. Don't feed your discontent by wanting what you do not have. Striving after that which you do not have. I thought the key to life was striving after that which I did not have to perfect in me that which is not perfect. But I found that the law forbade even that. And I died. Meaning, Paul, I think, is saying, meaning what Paul found there in the 10th commandment was I could not be the answer for what I was looking for in this life. Meaning, I needed something desperately that I did not have. Meaning that at the core of my being, at the root of my heart, I was discontent. And I died. It wasn't too long ago, um, Shia LaBeouf was a popular young actor. Um, and in an interview, he said this. He says, sometimes I feel like I'm living a meaningless life and I get frightened. I have no answers to anything, none. Why I'm an alcoholic, I haven't a clue. What is life about? I don't know. I don't handle fame well. Most actors on most days don't think they're worthy. I have no idea where this insecurity comes from, but it is a God-sized hole. If I knew, I'd fill it and I'd be on my way. He was so close. But he didn't even see it. If I knew I'd fill it, I'd, I'd be on my way. You see, true contentment is counterintuitive because you cannot even begin to approach attaining it until you've seen how truly empty of it you are in and of yourself. The biggest barrier to contentment in our lives 
is believing that we, on our own, with our own resources, will be able to grasp it. That's why we end up on this treadmill, because we look from thing to thing to thing in our lives, individually, personally, communally, whatever it may be. We are constantly grasping, and the more that we grasp, the more we feel like we need to chase. And the more that we chase, the further away it seems. And it's an endless cycle. And it breeds more and more discontent. And again, that's the irony, is it? How do we get something that we cannot grasp? Seems like a pipe dream, doesn't it? That's not where Paul stops. He continues by saying contentment really is ours. And I think this is the point of Philippians 4.13. Contentment is ours in Christ. Contentment is ours in Christ. Paul is asserting that in all circumstances, no matter the circumstances, he can be content in Christ who strengthens him. That's the secret. So think about this. It's not ignoring your circumstances. It's not even rising above your circumstances. And it's not just resigning yourself to your circumstances. It's living in your circumstances, no matter what they may be, in Christ. I think, in a sense, you could say that this is a bookend in the letter. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 21, there Paul says, for me to live is Christ. I think he's brought that idea now full circle. For me to live as Christ. Well, how, how is that helpful? Because in Christ, I can know that I own everything. I have everything I could ever need and more. And that is what empowers us. That's what strengthens us to be content. In a sense, you could say, if you are a Christian this morning, you name what you feel lacking in, and I can tell you right now, it is yours in Christ. What are we looking for in all of our achieving? Or what lies behind our dreadful fear of failure? No matter, in what, no matter, the, no matter what we're looking for it in. How is it that uh, Paul could say something like, or not Paul, Jesus could be say, say do not be anxious but what you'll eat or what you'll wear. And then Paul, earlier in this chapter, says, do not be anxious about anything. What are we looking for when we look for success? Are we not looking for the glory? Are we not looking for honor? Are we not looking for the prowess? Is it not worth? Is it not value? When we think of Jesus, who in Revelation chapter 4, we see all the host of creation coming before him and casting their crowns at his feet. And that same Jesus tells us, those who conquer in him, that he will give to us the crown of life. What is it that we're looking for in our relationships? Or what is it that lurks behind that driving fear of loneliness? What a friend we have in Jesus who will never leave us or forsake us, who is with us, he says, until the end of the age. What is it we're looking for in our family? Family is, is one of the most formative things in our lives. We look at our past 
the families that we came from, or we look at our present, the families that we have now, we think about how the things that we worry about, whether we're doing a good job, not, job or not raising our children, or we look back and say, did I do enough? We have in Christ the true elder brother who finds us, restores us, and unites us to himself and to the Father. What are we looking at? What is our culture looking at? What are we looking at, looking for in all our passion for justice? This is, what, again, what lies behind cancel culture. We all have this, this drive of justice and making sure what we think is right is what everybody else thinks is right. What are we looking for in those passions for justice? In Jesus, we have the one who is the Alpha and the Omega who is coming, bringing his recompense with him to repay each one for what they've done. The one who makes all things right. Do you desire love? Do you find it lacking? He's the one who loved us while we were still his enemies. Do you long for hope? We have it in his resurrection. Do you long for peace? We have it in the shedding of his blood. Do you seek joy? We're told it's a fruit of his spirit. Are you hungry? He's the bread of life. Are you thirsty? He is the living water. Are you naked? He covers you with his righteousness. Are you weak and wounded, sick and sore? He is the great physician. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. Do you desire wisdom or knowledge? He is the fount of all wisdom and knowledge. He's the word who was with God in the beginning, who was God, and who became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you want power? He rules and reigns over all things because God has put all things under his feet. Do you want riches? We all have been made co-heirs with him. Do you want rest? He says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And how many more could we come up with? It sounds great, but we also ask ourselves, how, how can this be? How can this be? Well, it goes back again to something he already said in this letter in Philippians 2. When he talked of Jesus, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He let go of what was rightfully his, and he emptied himself. What's the picture there? The picture there is he became our discontent. He absorbed all of it. Why? So that he could fill us. Because he is the one who fills all in all. And to all that, Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's the secret. <laughs> and there's things, look, any of us can think of any number of things that we have been looking to or looking for for so long. 
pursuit after pursuit, striving after striving. And I think one of the things that Paul is begging us to ask ourselves is, what if the secret is it was there the whole time? How would I live for and after something when I knew and believed in my heart that what it ultimately was I was looking for was already mine in Christ? So as we begin this new year together, I would encourage us to ask ourselves and one another, do you know the secret? May we find it in and through Christ who strengthens us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do need your strength. We need you to fill our empty souls. And you have promised to do just that. And so we look again to you through him who has filled us, through him who emptied himself for us. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.